Hey everyone, welcome to Considered, a podcast where turtlenecks and good designs thrive. I'm Dasha. And I'm Stephanie, and we're two industrial designers considering all things design. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Considered. Today we have a special guest here with us who has had a great impact on both mine and Dash's design education. We'd like to introduce Rob Letterer, who is an industrial designer and has an incredible career in both Australia and Canada for the past 40 years. Throughout his career, Rob has had a long-term collaboration project with the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta, in which he developed student projects using universal design methodology and the design of products for an aging population. This collaboration has expanded into the inclusion of computing sciences and pharmacy with the establishment of the Smart Condo, a research facility that examines issues of an aging population and independence. This ultimately brought him to design kitchen spaces to facilitate multi-physically challenged users. Our first interview with Rob is a two-part episode. In this first portion, we will discuss Rob's early years in design and how his move to Canada shaped his professional career as an industrial designer. Listen on to learn more. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. We're so excited. No, this is fun. I know because a lot of the times uh, as students, you don't really get to know too much about the instructors or how they got into design and what they've been, what did they do or what they've been done. Sometimes you see us working in the workshops, but a lot of the time it's, uh, it's a mystery. That's so true. That's a really good point. How are you doing today? How is you've recently retired and it doesn't feel like it because there's been so many uh, stuff to still tie up. So I've got still two graduate students to finish, and since I'm stuck here, I'm going to teach a uh, fall class, 300 level, because um, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to set it up as an online course. So that's going to keep me busy for a little while. Yeah, for sure. For those viewers who are not familiar, um, Rob has a really cute dog named Loki. (laughs) He kind of, he spent a lot of time in industrial design building and he kind of became, I would say, uh, a bit of a, a bit of a pal to all of the, (laughs) all of the students, the professors. (laughs) He has a unique life. Yeah. That's for sure. So I feel like you spend a lot of time with him as well right now. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We definitely want to get to know you better. I guess to start off, we kind of want to get to know your roots and where you started from. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Oh yeah, sure. Um, as you probably can tell by the accent, I was born in Australia, in Sydney, in a, a beach suburb called Barubra, which um, I think it's had a few claims to fame which aren't the best. Uh, it was quite a uh, beach suburbs were like there was a lot of drugs and it's kind of a rough area, and it's maintained that. In fact, uh, Russell Crowe did a documentary on it um, about the, that a number of years back. But um, I had the typical upbringing that was very similar to most of you here. You know, you went to school, you played sports and the various things like that. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated, so I spent a year bumming around at the beach, which was very enjoyable. (laughs) Um, And then, I guess, my parents divorced, and so there I was, um, left in a house with two dogs. And what am I going to do? So anyway, I decided that I better go to some sort of uh, educational institution. I I went to a similar thing that we've got here uh, in in Australia that's like NATE. You do Mm. diplomas. So I did an electrical engineering um, diploma to start with. And once I finished that, I went, a friend of mine was working up north in Australia in Arnhem Land, which is the Aboriginal Reserve. And there was a big mine site, uh, bauxite, into aluminum oxide. It was a Swiss company that owned it. And so I went up there and worked for eight months. 
That's similar to here where you go work on the oil field. Mm. Mm. They pay you a ridiculous amount of money and you stay in a camp, all that type of the usual thing. Mm -hmm. um, after about eight months, um, I decided I had enough of it. Basically, if you stayed any longer, you were, the money was going to go to the taxes. So I did what most Australians do after the, in their youth, in their early 20s, and you took off uh, to Europe for a year. And that kind of, it was a mixed thing. I was frustrated when I was working up north in, the, in, in that mining town with all the equipment and, I, you know, you, you're playing with big stuff and, it's, and it was badly designed. Mm. That's, that's, the that's the basis of the story. And, you know, you're working with stuff and you get frustrated working with stuff. So that was kind of something that was happening with me. And then I went to Europe and I spent a lot of time visiting relatives, visiting galleries, doing all that type of stuff. And um, towards the end, I was there for a, 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 a typical thing is that those days there was books for like, you know, Europe on $5 a day mm. and things <laughs> like that. And you buy a Euro pass for three months and so you'd get on the train at night so they'd sleep there and go somewhere so you didn't have to pay for hotels and all this type of stuff. Mm. It was great fun. You stayed at youth hostels and yeah. it, was, it was a great time. I bought a motorbike in England. I rode it to the Middle East. I spent three months riding my bike across Europe. Um, at the time and that was a great experience because you met different people and mm -hmm. it kind of got me when I talk about you observing people I think that's what designers do we tend mm -hmm. to look and see what people do and how things operate and getting back to that stuff that was happening up in uh, when I was working as uh, as the um, electrical um, technician thing whatever you want to call it um, getting frustrated with equipment coming back to Australia I was actually, um, I'd done a lot of uh, photography before and so I was actually um, working for and teaching in a place called the Australian Centre for Photography for a bit. So I was kind of moving into the art area from a very technical electrical area. And at the time I was getting, you know, as I said before, I was saying, God, someone could design this stuff better. And someone must be able to design this stuff better. And at that time I was thinking, oh, well, I'll go back and do a engineering degree because mm -hmm. I thought engineers design but yeah. then I found out no they don't <laughs> and there was a Sydney College of the Arts had been up and running for about three years mm -hmm. and it was a it had three design what well, was a mixture it had fine arts it had, which had some really good fine arts things besides sculpting and they had jewelry making they had glass blowing they had all this stuff and they started up um, kind of four design areas uh, industrial design, visual communication, uh, fashion and textile. What was the other one? Anyway, I can't think now. Um, so I applied and I was uh, accepted hmm. to go. Get, yeah. And in those days, these uh, design colleges were modelled off the English system, hmm. Australia being part of the Commonwealth. And so they were very typical to the way architecture was taught. Uh, there was 28 of us who started. Mm -hmm. I think it was a, there were seven of us that graduated. Wow. They did a very similar system as the old architecture where you used to go into the architecture college and they say, look at the person next to you, they're not going to be here when you finish. They mm -hmm. literally work you, and you know, if you can't make it through the first year, then literally half finished in the first year, they just wow. couldn't continue. It was tough, um, but it was fun. It was a whole lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So that's... Because I found out that you know engineers don't design, but industrial designers do. So mm. I was very fortunate that I uh, was got into the course. And when I graduated, um, I went and applied for a variety of jobs. There was one that was ex I had that I kind of thought I don't think I could do this for the rest of my life. It was a, a point of sale display like cardboard. Mm. company that does a lot of design uh, point of sale displays and packaging and that mm -hmm. I just didn't see myself bending cardboard for the rest of my <laughs> my career but um, there was some very interesting um, possibilities I ended up getting a job with a company called architectural graphics mm. and it was a funny company because it was a uh, uh, it was uh, two guys 
the owner, who was more of a business person, another designer, and myself as a designer, and they had a fabricate shop. And they did um, all sorts of things. I mean, it was really probably one of the best places to learn because I learned a lot about materials, different processes, different ways of designing. We did everything. Um, besides, um, obviously from the name Architecture Graphics, we did a lot of uh, signage work. Mm. We did also uh, public information systems. But we also did a lot of architectural work. So mm. if there was um, like a new hotel opening up, all the foyer area, all the light, you know, the sconces and all the different lighting stuff like that. So it was kind of small uh, runs of things. We'd do runs of 50, 100 I think the biggest one we did was something for American Express, which was a couple of thousand of stuff. Mm. But we did all these weird things, like bomb search mirrors for the tactical response and shields and, wow. you know, like he'd take on anything. And mm. he ran quite a, a, an interesting little design studio where they would take, anyone who walks in would take on any project. So I got a, a vast array of experience through that. Mm. Um, I worked there for three, four years. At this time I was married and we had two children at that stage and my wife was from here, from Edmonton. Oh. We met in Australia and she wanted to come back for six months because her parents were getting on and wanted the you know, grandkids to play with the grandparents and so we came here in 1985 wow. and we were going to come for six months. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Here uh, we are. <laughs> here we are, 35 years or whatever it is later. <laughs> Not quite, but anyway. Um, and I had met um, Bruce Spence, who was the uh, coordinator of industrial design when he came to Australia. Hmm. Uh, because I was involved in a number of things, design um, mm -hmm. stuff there um, in terms of... Uh, Groups and things. I was working for one particular group that was, uh, which has always been an interest of mine, even here, was a group called um, Technical Aids for the Disabled, which is kind of old terminology, but mm. uh, we were designing all sorts of uh, assistive aids. Mm. And we, there was a, I forget why Bruce came, I think there was some conference and he was part of it. And I got to talk to him because from Edmonton and my wife was from there, so we chit chatted. And so when I came here, um, I came here and we, came and saw Bruce and he says, oh, you know, would you like to teach a class? Hmm. I said, sure, you know, I'm here for six months, I may as well teach a class. I wasn't <laughs> really thinking of doing any work at the time. And uh, then shortly after that, unfortunately, uh, my father-in-law died and so we wanted to stay on to help uh, my wife's mother and everything, so we stuck around. Hmm. And after three years and doing some part-time teaching and also doing some consulting work we decided we wanted to stay mm. and so I went back sold up everything shipped stuff here which was useless because we never even opened the boxes for like half a dozen years after we were here <laughs> don't ask me why we brought this stuff here um, and so I, I, I was doing consulting work and part-time teaching mm. and I did that um, up to 1998, yeah, 98, when a full-time position became a open here, I applied and I was hired as a full-time instructor, uh, assistant professor, then I went through the usual thing, assistant professor, associate professor. The interesting thing happened is, as soon as, uh, the day I got, which is, when I say hired or you start, which is July the 1st, uh, Bruce, who was the only other instructor at the time, um, went on sabbatical. <laughs> so I literally stepped in and became coordinator <laughs> in, in, in the first week. Wow. Which was kind of a bit of a stretch. And, and at the time, I didn't know really what I was doing as far as coordinating a program. Because <laughs> I'd been teaching part-time and I'd been helping Bruce, but I didn't realise all the other stuff. Mm. And then uh, Bruce came back after six months and... Uh, said he was retiring in six months. So that's oh, wow. so I ended up being the only person in ID from 1999 to about 2005. I was wow. the only instructor. Wow. Yeah, and we had a bunch of um, 
uh, sessionals. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, Cesare Gajewski and Tim, uh, Tim had finished working uh, with, uh, um, what was it? Hot House. Hot House. Yeah. And so both of them came back and did their masters and then we hired them as full-time hmm. instructors. Wow. So that was, a, that was a relief because up until then it was just me, which made it very difficult. Um, but we were very fortunate. But it was, there was lots of other issues around it. We, we applied for the government at the time for what we called access funding, which was a, quite a large, uh, close to about 600,000 uh, a year what they called uh, uh, emerging centres of excellence and so we were able to do that and that's how we were able to fund to get uh, the extra And people. how many how many students were here at that time between when you were here by yourself? Is it as big bit, as it is now? Um, it was a little smaller, not by much okay. because we used to it, this right now we take in around 20 students in the two, well, 40 students in the first year with the two classes. Mm -hmm. um, we were taking in uh, 15. Wow. So still 30 students. So there was a lot of sessional instructors, which was good. We had a lot of different people. That was fun. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a bit of a, you know, madhouse for a while there until we had the more, more uh, full-time people. Wow. And so that happened in too far. And then as up until now, I've been teaching and still doing research work. My main area of research um, started um, when I first came here. I was still doing a lot of work uh, mixed, again, very like stuff that, first off, stuff that I'd never show in a portfolio because it was crap, but you know, <laughs> we all have that. We all have heaps of stuff that we never, and you, you know, when you're consulting that, a lot of the time you just take on jobs because you need the money. Yeah. And so there was uh, a program done by the uh, research Council, Alberta Research Council, that people could apply for, and they'd give them anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars to get some design work done. Mm. So I designed everything from uh, coin-operated dartboards for pubs to <laughs> um, looking at um, when, the, when they brought in the environmental thing with uh, rubber tires to what they could be reconstituted into. Oh, I'm trying to think of all the other silly stuff that we did. Uh, anything from, you know, water savings for toilet and things like that. People came with all crazy ideas. You know, give me the ten thousand, or I'll design you something. <laughs> um, oh yeah, that was. Oh, that was a weird one. That was another one. Um, nail clippers that captured the the, the nails that didn't oh. go away. Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh yeah, they came with anything, and we were we were trying anything, those. and we were we were doing um, uh, agricultural equipment to um, for a company down in um, down in, in um, Olds. So we did a whole range of supercomputers people here did work for um, a bunch of it and Glen Rose um, assisted, you know, again for uh, more in the assistive devices area. So we were doing uh, there's a couple of us were kind of mixing um, some exhibition stuff we did uh for the opening of the uh, Reynolds Museum, some uh, interactive, the stuff I think is still going there. There's a, a thing that they talk about, uh, the like Henry Ford's production line, and we had these little builder car thing that they did. So we built so odd things, just oh. everything. Because this place you can't have, Edmonton hasn't got that traditional industrial design type of place like architecture or something here you have to be kind of happy to take on anything and everything anything. that comes your way yeah. which is which is fun mm, yeah. but, it, it, but it's sometimes hard you can't say you can't like specialize in just this area because yeah. there's just not enough business in that area um, and so I was doing that and then as I said before uh, then I was because I was here at the university I was able to concentrate in specific research areas and um, when I did my uh, graduate degree, my master's in thesis, it was on um, exercise for spinal cord. So I was already getting into that medical mm -hmm. area from my previous stuff in Australia as well and some of the stuff that I was doing 
as well. And so I, that got me into the medical profession with other people and I was doing all sorts of other projects. And one of the, and I know one of those questions you sent out that you asked me, what was one of the more interesting thing or something that I really felt um, uh, was one of the highlights of my design career, because my design career is over. Let's be serious, I'm retired. <laughs> no, um, I still play around, but not, not seriously. Um, this was in 2001, mm-hmm. and they, uh, they had just started, uh, 3D printers had just started coming onto the market. Mm-hmm. And there was a fellow in town here who was uh, going to be the representative for Stratasys, and he had a machine, and I was able to get it here at the university. And at the same time, out at the uh, Misericordia Hospital, there was a group called Compro, it's now called IRSM, mm-hmm. and they were a, a specialised uh, surgical group that dealt with head and neck cancer and surgeries. Mm. And the anaplastologist, Rosie, she was interested in because uh, anaplastology is making up you know, the silicon eyes, ears, noses, everything, so she was interested in maybe we could use 3D printing for doing some stuff, you know, making moulds and everything, because it, basically they're... they're uh, they were hand sculpting. So mm-hmm. you'd sit there, they'd look at, if someone's missing an ear, they'd look at the other ear, they'd be hand sculpting to mm-hmm. make it look, then they make a cast and they make a silicon and then they paint it to, and clip on so that you can mm-hmm. clip either there or if you've got an eye missing or something like that. And so she and I was playing around with all this stuff and we were looking at uh, the, can it be used for other purposes besides just making moulds or making realistic, like something that the shape that we can do it. So we're working with various software, and also at the time there was a over in um, computing science there was a fellow, Jonathan Schaefer, who was getting a, a, like a twenty million dollar grant, I think it was, to develop a supercomputing stuff. He's the fellow who who made the uh, I think it's the checkers game that world oh, things, yeah. and part of that grant was to look at what they called visualization hmm. and he found out that I was playing with this and mm-hmm. so he came over on a Thursday and was just chit-chatting about it and I was showing him what we're doing with the stuff and he said how much did that machine cost and th- remember this is the very beginning of 3d printers mm-hmm. that was a hundred thousand wow and now, you, now th- and it, it, believe me it is no better than the 2500 Stratasys that you can that like the, the, the maker bots they wow. were basically Wow. As, as the same quality or the same capacity as what these were now, but back then it was <laughs> big business. And so he said, yeah, that's great. Um, how much are they? I said, oh. He says, when can you order one? I said, oh, no, he says, go ahead, order it. So literally, that was it. And we ended up with a 3D printer here. Wow. We were the first, I think we were the first, I know, I know for sure the first design, but I think we were one of the first universities in Canada to have a 3D printer. Wow. That's cool. That's and so cool. I started working with Rosie on some of the medical stuff. Mm-hmm. So we were doing all these types of um, models. In particular, we we're looking at the tolerance factors and we we're trying to figure out various parts and things that we could do. And one of their patients had a brain tumour that had to be cut taken out mm. so when they do that they will cut part it was right in the forehead they cut a piece about three inches by two inches of his skull take it off went and got the tumor out and put the skull the the, 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 the bone part back but what can happen which is in, in, in not a, not in it I forgot what the percentage is I think it's about 10 10 12 percent um, it doesn't uh, adhere back, and so it actually dies. And so they have to take it; a- they take it away, mm. and uh, they have to clean up the area. And they usually wait about uh, six months after that. Then they have to they have to replace it, you know, with a uh, because you've got literally three by two inches of your of your skull missing in the forehead. So the person's wearing a helmet because there's only skin covering mm. your brain. Yeah. Think about it, the patients, first he had the brain tumour out. Mm-hmm. Then he's had to get 
the skull piece out because it's died. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's two operations. And then after a while they say, okay, now we're going to put a, create a plate. So what they do is they, they, they incise around the, the, the hairline up above the forehead there. They peel it, the skin down. They, so it's now exposed, the brain's exposed to the air. Oh. And they take it like a silly putty and make an impression of the missing part. Now, you've got to think about this is also, it's uh, the silly putty kind of the putty thing is non-sterile. It's not even sterile. Yeah, yeah. And you're open to air. So it's, it's, it's pretty nasty. They close them up and then they take that impression and make a, uh, it's, it's, a it's a epoxy type of plastic thing. They make the, the, the part and they open them up again and they clean up and they screw it on and they do that. So there's two operations just to get that plate in after he's done a, another, after he's had all the problems before. And there's a thing called uh, patient morbidity. They, morbid, morbidity? They really you know, get fairly anxious about all this stuff. And so we were playing around with taking uh, CT scans, looking at that, sp that cavity that needs to be filled, and seeing if we could, how we, we were 3D printing a, a replica of that cavity missing. Mm -hmm. and seeing if we can uh, then create a 3D print that would fill the thing to make a mould, to make the stuff, to make the, the plate. And we were playing around with this. We were just thinking, oh, yeah, this is, this is, you know, just at this stage, when I say we're playing around, we weren't, we were thinking of these ideas that could be possible. And the um, head of uh, Compre at the time, uh, Dr. Wolfhart, um, came to us and said, oh, we've got this patient, the one that had the missing patient, and uh, we're going to open him up in you know, 10 days' time. Let's try. Hmm. Wow. Well, this is the first time anything like this has been tried um, on humans. So, I mean, they've done, they do studies on animals and stuff like that, or they use, we use a, a deer skull and we were doing things with that, mm -hmm. but not with a live well, that was kind of the most, it was fascinating. It was completely scary as hell because, wow. you know, we're trying to figure out if this is going to work or not. Mm. Anyway, um, we did it all. And see, the, the interesting thing about doing the replication of the, of, uh, the skull part, there's thicknesses because they've got to figure out where to screw it and then adhere it to. Mm. And you can imagine when they're doing that, on the, they're trying to figure that out. They can't really, you can't see the underside of that where the brain is because the brain's there. But if we make models, then you can see where the thicker parts are, where it's best to put screws to it, little tabs to adhere it. Yeah. So, um, 10 days we built, um, we made the, rep, the, the, the mold, we made the, the plate, and bingo, they, op they opened him up cleaned up a little bit around the area. It went perfect, it was like, it, it, normally it takes a few hours, it was like really quick, and it was done. It hmm. was a complete success. That kind of was really um, exciting for us. As I said, Rosie and I were scared like hell it was gonna happen because, <laughs> you know, first time you don't, you're not sure. But from then on, we did a bunch of other ones. That led the government, uh, to be interested in what we were doing. And they gave uh, one and a half million to open up the first medical modeling lab in Canada, which wow. is it's still there. And so it was really funny, because again, these timelines sometimes are really weird. They gave us literally, I think it was about three weeks to figure out all the equipment we needed just literally spent a million and a half. What? Yeah, and so we bought a variety of, uh, we bought two, three um, 3D printers, we bought a uh, body scanner and a whole bunch of other stuff. Wow. And they built the lab out at the Misericordia Hospital, it's still there. Um, in their That's great crazy. brilliance, they give, as all governments do, they give all this money for um, capital expenditure, like for equipment, but mm -hmm. no money for people to run it. And so once we had set it up, and I was still working full time here, and uh, 
and I was still the only person and I was doing partly that work as well. Um, we had a student who was interested and so Rosie and I said, okay, um, I think he started off doing a practicum there first, I'm not sure, but uh, then they hired him, but that was Ben King. <laughs> oh, yeah. And nice. thankfully it was Ben because <laughs> he literally, he turned up on the first day, Rosie gave him the keys, opened the door and said, you figure it out. <laughs> and she went to do her work with her clients on because she was an anaplastologist, she was doing stuff. So Ben was given the key, there's the manuals, figure it out. <laughs> Thankfully it was Ben and not someone else because I don't think anyone would have taken it on as well as he did. Um, and he, he took that um, medical modelling lab, something way more than I could have done, and um, he took it to... They, I mean, they had literally... we had. Uh, uh, US Navy coming up to look at some of the procedures. We had, we had people all over the world were coming there, wow. and some of the um, medical, you know, the the, the operational uh, procedures that they now do, and the programming that they've created in terms of the protocols. There's there's surgeons there that will not would not operate now without. The models going in there, working with the the, the, the programs, the 3D printing, and that surgical planning—it's all done there. They've got, they've got um, some really um, great stuff like these jigs now, um, because when you when you lose part of your jaw, they take your fibula out of your leg and they cut it up and re re put it in there mm -hmm. to give you the same jawline. Um, well, they've got the the precision that they've got now is phenomenal. Mm. They can do these, they've got these, once they take the fibula out, they put it into a, a jig and they've got everything lined up to cut it right at the precise angles. So they do, literally they do the surgery um, on in the screen, on, on the computer, thing, and it's all planned before they even go into surgery. Wow. And this is all the stuff that Ben really helped develop and everything. And out of that, we actually developed a, uh, with, uh, changed their name to IRSM, with, the group there with John and uh, the other people with industrial design and with um, the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine, a Master's in Medical Modelling. Mm. And we've graduated probably about five students now. Uh, I think four of them came out of ID, mm. like Heather and, and a few others. But Heather's working there now. She's done some great jobs. She works at the lab there. But, and then uh, we've got other students, one's, one's in Europe now. And so there, there's a lot of, uh, to, for me, I think that's the one project that I could say, I feel that was the, one of the more, most important projects I've ever been involved in, wow. was to develop that lab, have students going in there, getting the specialization and working everywhere now around the world. And, um, I th and again, it's, it's, Improving or the improving the quality of life because you know when that head and neck uh, cancer is a pretty severe um, issue, and to be able to get the quality of the results through using design thinking, mm. I think is really um, key. And we're very fortunate that we had people like uh, Rosie, Dr. Wolfhart, and other people there who saw the value mm. in having design integrated within the medical practice. Now we're finding more and more everywhere, but that was one of the first places in, in Edmonton, probably in Canada, that really um, allowed us to be equal partners. Mm. And I found that was probably the most rewarding. And I mean, I'm sure if you talk to Ben, he'll be able to tell you more of the, the stuff that he did there, but he, he, he took it to places that we could only we were, we were dreaming of, and he actually did it phenomenally well. Wow. And so, you know, they, they, they had, we had, they had, he was running uh, classes, uh, instruction, you know, seminars and that, with these well-known international doctors who were coming there to learn all these processes and stuff, and he was, he was doing that, so it was really good. Um, that's probably the one that I, 
the one uh, project, all the other stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's been fun. I've been working with all sorts of uh, groups um, recently with uh, Bariatrics, mm. which has been uh, another one with, with Mary, which has been an interesting one. And I had done for a number of years, worked with uh, uh, another professor here, um, Lily Liu, uh, who was the chair of um, occupational therapy. Um, and we did a lot of work with developing the smart condo, mm. which is a uh, learning, uh, full functional one bedroom condominium, uh, learning and design as well for um, people with uh, various disabilities um, mm. or challenges, whichever term you want to use. So the, that area has always been the one that I've worked in. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's just a, that's kind of my design journey up wow. until now, uh, except I probably built uh, probably about a dozen, maybe more, about 15 motorbikes. Oh I've, wow. all, I've had a, <laughs> I had a passion for it from early, even when I, I think I was about 18 when I, I did my first one. And then, huh. then uh, my wife banned me from it when, the, when my third child came along. She said, you're not riding her any longer. But then uh, after a while I got back into it and... Huh. Uh, the nice thing about our workshop here is I can uh, had that where Tim's got his little office that was known as Rob's Garage. Oh, I <laughs> love it! And I had uh, I was always building a motorbike in there of some sort. Oh. Was, so that was that's kind of a hobby. Love that. But it's a design hobby. Yeah. It was really really a fun thing to do. That's so interesting because actually. Um, on, on another episode, we even talked about this. My grandpa, he back in back in the day, um, during the space race, oh. he designed. He was a designer of um, uh, all all lighting that was launched during space race on the USSR side. So he was basically an inventor. That was his title back then. But he was definitely like a designer, engineer oh. type of person. And he also built motorbikes, like a lot. Oh, he got so much fun. that was like his his <laughs> hobby as well. So that's funny. That's funny no, no, that it's, it's, it's actually a well. Again, it goes back to when I my earlier, you know, teenage years. I was always interested in machinery. That's why I did the electrical because it was kind of fit with me. And as I said, I, I built a bike, and I think it was like uh, you got to remember that what came out when I was. Uh, must have been 18, 19, something like that, was um, um, Easy Rider. Mm. It came out. Right, so here I'm playing with motorbikes and Easy Rider came out. So, my God, everyone was getting into it then. It was a cool thing to, you know, make choppers and things like that. So we were, we were playing around with old motorbikes then and doing them. And so, and I said, and then when I went to Europe, I, you know, rode one across Europe for, for three months, which was kind of interesting. Because in those days, you come to the border mm -hmm. and they, they didn't really check you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so one of the funniest, well, sometimes they would and sometimes they wouldn't. But um, I remember mm -hmm. I was crossing from Italy into then what was called Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And I get to the border and it's raining and everything and I take my goggles and I raise them above onto the helmet so you can see my eyes. I show him the passport and he looks at me, really looks at the passport, closes and says, yeah, go in. I'm thinking, that was easy. You know, what's going on here? So I'm riding through and all of a sudden I notice these signs and it says, letter of beer. So he probably thought I was part of the brewery family that was That's part so of that funny. area. <laughs> so I got through there pretty quickly. But um, I think part of what I, and so I rode down through Yugoslavia through the mountains and then into Greece. And when I got into Greece, I met up with other people on bikes. That's what you were doing. You know, you'd meet up with some guys and you'd drive somewhere. And I, and I met up with some guys, uh, they, were from, they, were from, uh, they were Dutch, and they said, oh, how'd you, how'd you get down here? I said, oh, I would ride through down the coast, the Dalmatian coast, which is beautiful, and mm. Dubrovnik and all those areas. And that's before the war, so it was really beautiful. Yeah. And then went through the mountains and they said, are you crazy? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, people get you know, they get robbed, they, you know, there's in the mountains there, it's pretty wild. Right? And, you know, they all get the ferry from Brindisi across to Piraeus and that's how they do it. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I didn't have any problem. And then I start to think, you know, because it's kind of blind ignorance gets you through these things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that's like in design, you know. <laughs> I just, 
I'll do it. Just and blind ignorance gets me through somehow. And so I, I, I so yeah, I kind of thought, well, I'd, I'd stopped at a lot of those, the, um, you know, to get gas, and there's usually a cafe, and you walk in there, it's all men, and that, and yeah, they're pretty rough looking, but they probably looked at me and said, oh, this guy's looking here. He's, <laughs> he looks pretty crazy, so we're not going to touch him. But <laughs> With his motorbike. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, yeah, if he's crazy enough to come through, and we're not going near him. But um, yeah, I, I, it was really, a, it, but I think that part of that philosophy about giving it a go, mm. I think it's important in design. Mm. Um, I think when I think back of what we do here and teach here, I think it's partly of that is the attitude that you might not know what you're going to end up with, mm-hmm. but you have um, a process, you have a framework to which to start with, mm-hmm. and in some ways you have the confidence that you'll have something in the end mm. that possibly is worthwhile and is of use. Yeah. And if I think about um, uh, Sir Ken Robinson in that TED talk where he talks about creativity and he talks about the children and he says, you know, one thing we do know, you know, if you're not prepared to give it a go, you'll never come up with anything original or creative. Mm. Where kids are, because kids are prepared to be wrong. Mm. That doesn't mean being wrong is always good, but they're prepared to give it a go. They don't, you know, where as adults, it's kind of beaten out of us. Where I think one of the f- strengths of our program is that we let students kind of develop them and go with the way they want. And I've heard this from a couple of a number of ex-students who've been out there and they're working. They come back, and I've always asked them, "What do you think was the strength of the program?" And I had one. Um, this is going back a few years. Who was in? Um, who went to architectural school in England. Mm-hmm. And at the time, this is when uh, East Germany, the Berlin Wall came down and they were looking at reconstruct, reconstructing Berlin and there was competitions for, for architectural schools all over the place. Mm-hmm. And he was with, uh, with I think, two groups that won uh, commissions to do work in Berlin for mm-hmm. rebuilding. And I asked him, well, you know, how'd you find that? He says, well, it was kind of interesting. He said, because you know, there's all people from all over the world, he said, um, there was people there who had far greater knowledge on things like beam strengths and all the engineering stuff. But he said they, weren't crea- they, they couldn't be creative. He said, I would draw these wacky things and then I'd figure out how to build it. Mm-hmm. And he said that's one of the things he felt was the strength of our program is that you were prepared to experiment with ideas. Mm. If they worked, great. If they didn't, it still didn't. It, it wasn't a detriment. Yeah. And he felt that... He, he had the ability to play, and I think it goes back to one of the things I always tell the f- first-year students is, you know, it's easier to tone down a crazy idea mm-hmm. than to spark mm-hmm. up a dull one. Yeah. So all these other people can, yeah, they can build, you know, Costco warehouses easily, but you can't do something that's more exciting necessarily. And I've heard it again recently with uh, a student who went and did his master's uh, in Germany. Mm. Um, Rob Faulkner and he said when they first you know they were all in the group and there's students from everywhere from South America from all because it's kind of an engineering architecture thing and they'd be given an issue a problem and half of them couldn't start they just because it was so abstract mm. and he said he didn't have a problem with it because he knew he had a uh, that we, he, he'd had sufficient work and we've done here with methods processes and a way to address any issue and come up with something that has meaning and value Mm. so he would go along with this where a lot of the ones who come out of different programs like engineering that they they can't work in that abstract kind of way way or the area and i think when i look at some of the projects you guys did um especially the one the last one with the homeless Mm -hmm. i mean that you couldn't ask for more abstract than just the word homeless. Yeah. And yet you had to find um, an area to research, an area to work with. You had to define it yourselves. I think those are the things. And, and as, as Rob said, you know, he wasn't worried. He, he, the other people couldn't start where he could. And he said because he realised that he, he had um, a method, a process he could put together. To work. 
he didn't know what was going to come out, but he had the confidence in the process, mm. in the design process, whatever you want to call it, or that he'd been taught here, that he will have something. Mm. And I think that, to me, is one of the, the strengths of any design program, is how do you deal with the abstract? Because yeah. it's very easy to give you, you know, design X, Y, Z, you know, yeah, there's, there's all the problems. But when you're given an ab abstract term like homeless, mm. and then you talk to people who are in that area and there's, you find there's a gazillion different things and different meanings. So you've got to put meaning to the terms, you've got to create the research, you've got to create some sort of um, uh, design process. With this. And, and, and that's kind of a bit of a gimmicky thing that's been happening at the moment. They talk about design process. Companies have said, oh, yeah, we're going to put design thinking into our into our uh, um, company, but they really don't know what it means because literally design thinking is about taking the abstract and dealing with it to come out with something. So every, well, again, going back to the thing, the word homeless, there's three groups and each of you took on different elements. Mm -hmm. So there's not one answer. Mm. And I think that's the problem with a lot of the other um, professions like engineering. I keep picking on engineering, but you know, they, they, they just, and, and medicine, it's, 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 medicine is a kind of a, a funny one as well, where they, they have these very um, strict boundaries mm. where we as designers kind of start out with no boundaries. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a different um, game to play. But that's why we're of value in all of those areas because if we weren't in there, then literally all, we, all architecture would be Costco. That's true. And so if you look at the, and if you look at some of the ones that have won the major, I think it's called the Prixer uh, Architectural Award, you look at some of these people, they're trained as sculptors or they're trained as something else. Half of them aren't, yes, they've got architecture, but half of them had started off something else, a much mm. more um, abstract Phew. world mm. before they got into the very you know, rigid thing of architecture and having mm. to deal with codes and everything else. Yeah. That yeah. is such an interesting journey. I feel like what's really cool is that you basically, I know you don't talk about this and you never told any one of us this, but you basically established the medical design uh, kind of community in Edmonton and maybe even in Canada, one of the first... One, well, of, the one of the first, yeah, but I, so I would say I did it myself. I mean, I, I'd give much more credit to Ben than me for doing that. Um, <laughs> but there's there's other people who have picked up on it. Um, we've had people now, um, again, you've got uh, in other areas like uh, Gillian in, in BCD who's doing a lot of public health information science stuff. Um, Patrick, who's been developing over in uh, in the Faculty of Medicine with the technology, and he's hired uh, two of our students, mm -hmm. Cody and um, Trina, and they're doing fantastic work. Mm -hmm. And so it's it. I would say, yeah, I kind of a lot of the stuff just happens. It's not like I said, oh, I'm going to start doing this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Opportunities open up and I think the one thing about designers is that we're very good at picking up opportunities mm. where other people might say oh my god that sounds not so difficult but oh I'm not really um, this is not a field where I should be in or where why am I into it working this and I'll give you a good example of that and when I talk about certain people having um, a um, an understanding, and I, I give credit to people like uh, Dr. Wolfhart. I was in a meeting um, with Dr. Wolfhart, a couple of other surgeons. There was uh, two engineers, and there, was, there were three engineers. Uh, one was the was the head of the nanotechnology ca Canadian chair. Uh, two other people, and we were talking about all of these issues with implants and stuff, and they were, were talking about trying to develop a robotic eye. Hmm. Because when you've got a, 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 a plastologist, when you've got a, a, a fake eye, for a better word, you know, 
if you're lying on the beach and you fall asleep, well, one eye's closed and the other one's still open. <laughs> it's pretty spooky. Yeah. And they actually have to give you, they actually make two or three um, prosthetics because your skin changes colour in summer to winter. Mm. So you, you, they match the colour of if you've got a bit of a tan, if that's what you normally do, they give, they make one a bit more tan than the winter one. So it's, it's, it's interesting things about it. So one of the things they wanted to do is try to make a robotic eye with the nanotechnology and all that, which would actually kind of blink, because remember, the eye doesn't blink. So they're talking about all that. And I'm in on this meeting. You know, John's asked me to come to this meeting. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm going, I'm listening to these, like, really high-level experts in nanotechnology and surgery. I'm sitting there, and I, I, I'm kind of working, and after, afterwards I asked him, I said, well, why'd you ask me here, you know? There's something, he said, because you ask different questions. Mm. See, as designers, we ask different questions. We're not stuck in the protocol of a particular profession, because we work with every profession. Mm. We try to get bits of knowledge from everyone, because that's how we put our designs together. You're talking about the design of this equipment that we're talking in now. There's electronic engineers, there's ergonomists, there's marketers. We, we work with all of them, so we have kind of grasp around that area. And I learned from an early stage that rather, I would ask the questions which seem, to me, I didn't, other people might think are obvious questions, but maybe because of their sense of their profession, they don't want to ask. Mm. And so, you know, just as a joke, I'd say, oh, you know, we were talking about the old orbital thing. I'd say, oh, this, the pointy bone here, you know, the cheekbone here. He says, yeah, because they were using the Latin names, you know, like, mm. and that's another thing. Um, a lot of professions, and, and we've done it a bit, it's the, the jargon of the professions. And I've looked at that from the point of view, like when you talk with doctors and with other professions, they'll use professional jargon mm. and the reason for that it's kind of a gatekeeping of information yeah they don't want you to be as as knowledgeable as them necessarily unless you've gone to medical school but i always kind of debunk it by just using oh the pointy bone here yeah that one you mm. know and so all of a sudden the conversation drops from this protectiveness mm -hmm. to actual real information and I think that's a, a, a tactic that we as designers have done for many, many years with mm -hmm. different professions is we, 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 deep, we try to get them out of that professional jargon and just, you know, start talking about the real issues because the jargon can hide lack of knowledge, it can hide um, all sorts of issues. Yeah. But I, 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 so I, was, I was kind of flattered by the fact that he said, you know, because you guys ask different questions. That's so interesting. And so, you know, that could help get to the root of what was really needed or what was really done. Otherwise, these professions just stick to their, what's known within that mm. profession. So it, it was fun. I enjoyed all that. Yeah, we, even on, on a couple of the episodes that we've been filming, even the interview that we did with Tim, we kind of talked about how do you talk to other professions as designers? Because a lot of times we'll probably be the only person who is a designer on a multidisciplinary team and finding a way, because I feel like a lot of times there's this kind of uh, stereotype of a designer being this person who's just you know artistic and only cares about maybe like, aesthetics yeah the aesthetics mm. or is like oh you can draw really cool or something like that but I feel like a, it, it's interesting because Tim also said something along those lines that he was saying that you need to find a way to communicate within that language but yeah it's yeah you, ha you have to pick up on that on the, on the language for mm -hmm. sure um, but there's a lot of times when I will regurgitate terms and stuff only to try and let them know that they're not so special. Mm. That even though I'm a designer, I know their language and their terms. Mm. And, that, and that's kind of what we try to do here a bit. You know, we've got a, a fairly well... Um, stocked workshop with lots of equipment and I keep saying when students come in here and they say oh yeah this is great and I said yeah you'll learn how to 
you know, Ray will give you a demonstration of how to weld two pieces of steel together, and he'll talk about it. That um, the demonstration you're given, you won't get a job, um, you know, next summer mm-hmm. welding on the pipelines or something like that. But what it does, it's it's no, it, it's it gives you an understanding. So when you have to go talk to someone who you want to get some things welded, you're not walking in there completely clueless. And that's part of what design is. It's about having enough knowledge to communicate to other people what you want done Mm. and to the, you know, with the same concerns as they have. Mm. And I think that's part of why we have things like the workshop with all those things. So if you understand the behaviour of a piece of wood going through a bandsaw and things like that, then when you're going to a... Uh, place to get some furniture made you can talk to them your drawings make more sense Mm -hmm. so part of that is just like a library it's about getting that background knowledge and then you can go I mean literally that's I remember that's what I did for the first three months when I worked at uh, architectural graphics is I was detailing stuff and going to the still works to get stuff bent and stuff like that and I was building up constantly uh, like a library of information and how you talk to them and what what are their concerns and what are the tolerances that things can work at and all that stuff the different behavior of materials um, it was a great experience but that but it was so I could actually talk to these people and it's the same with the doctors you know it was really funny because Ben and I would be some things and because they were all doctors they, they thought we were doctors because we were <laughs> and, and that's a doctor and I said no and I think after about, Ben said too, I, I, after about three months of it, you just stop correcting them. You just say, yeah, sure. And I still get mail with Dr. Lederer on it or something. There you, know, you go. Uh, you know, you get tired of creating because they could only perceive that if you were working on medical problems, you had to be a doctor. Hmm. Interesting. As opposed to being a designer. Huh. Those and we're, we're, slowly, we're slowly breaking that down in lots of areas too. Hmm. And that's it's an interesting uh, feel, but Ben, yeah, Ben, we used to laugh at it, because you know? here he is teaching some of the leading surgeons from different countries on how you can utilize designer software mm-hmm. for improving surgical planning. Well, you'd have to be a doctor for that, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, surprise, surprise, yeah, it was really interesting. That's yeah, funny. Ben. If you talk to Ben, he'll be able to tell you all those funny things. So yeah, funny. we're hoping to get him on the podcast As pretty well. soon here. Yeah, exactly. yeah, he's got he's got a lot of interesting uh, projects he's been involved in. So cool and stuff. Would you say that your design education in Australia versus what you've been teaching here at the U of A is quite different? Oh yeah. Yeah. Very much different. We didn't have computers. We didn't have... Ca- <laughs> well, we did have computers, but they were big, monstrous things that you had punch cards. Mm-hmm. So you'd be walking around with a stack of, of you know, 500 cards. God forbid you, you dropped it, only put one in the wrong spot. You'd, you'd, your thing would run all night and you'd get nothing out of it. But we didn't have uh, laptop things. We didn't have stuff yeah. like that. We had the monochrome screens. We didn't have colour stuff like that. <laughs> so... Drawing was the main medium. And, but it's interesting because te- technology changed a lot in of what, how design was taught. Even here, when I first came here, we, had, we didn't have this computer lab that was... That I came here in 85. This computer lab was built 10 years later, mm. or 12 years later. So we were just doing it... I won't say the old school, but it was still a lot of uh, hand drawing, hand rendering... Um, not much the stuff that was done on computers was because in those days you didn't have a mouse mm-hmm. so you had to keep things so you'd have to literally put coordinates in space to create a form wow. so it would take you an hour to build a box by oh. typing coordinates and then you'd, you'd change it and you'd move it. Oh, it was it was a very long and laborious task That's to crazy. work in the CAD in those days. Huh. Uh, in fact, and, and, you ha- and we used to learn language. I, I, I used to program in Fortran, which is, I don't, I don't think that even exists anymore now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, 
Yeah, in those days. But the education was different but similar. Mm. Um, we didn't have as much technology. But I'd say we still had a very similar, um, let's say, philosophy. Mm. You know, um, what, what we were taught, you know, um, we talk about sustainability now. Those days, it was talked, it was referred to as as, as um, appropriate technology. Mm. So we were looking at all those things, and but we were taught in those days far more on the very narrow traditional industrial design. Mm. We were doing designing for products of mass production. Mm. There was no such thing as service design at those stages. There wasn't anything to do with um, well medical design. Well, there was medical design, but it was it was all about the product, like mm. objects. It wasn't about systems or how things would work. And in a lot of ways, the design briefs were written by either marketers or the engineers or the you know the CEO mm. of the company or whatever company it was in. And so that was. Um, it was all about objects, hmm. you know, and, and I think there was, um, the thing that got me originally involved in design was because, I, as I said before, with all when I was doing the electrical stuff was how shitty the, to work with ergonomically really bad designs and stuff like that. So ergonomics was coming in, hmm. but it wasn't a major or strong force at that time. There was in certain areas. Different countries had different approaches. I mean, ergonomics was, you know, when you look at Dreyfus and all his stuff, that was still, that was, it was there. Mm -hmm. But I would say the balance of design in terms of if it, it, if it was cheaper to do it one way, and it was going to cost more to do it with ergonomics involved, they would always do it the cheap way. Mm. So the values of all these different elements has changed. Mm -hmm. um, companies like uh, some co companies thought if we, at that time, again, it was a different uh, consumer markets. So a company could produce anything and it would sell mm. pretty well. Mm -hmm. You know, did something, it would sell. Mm -hmm. um, that's changed where companies can't just produce anything because their markets are much more uh, refined. Mm. So there has to be a lot more research into what uh, is actually needed. There's much more um, user interaction thinking it goes on. Well, you know, the, um, the whole thing of the methodologies has changed too. We, we didn't use uh, some of the, you, you know, user-centered design theories until the 90s. Mm. Interesting. So now we're getting into a whole range of different things now. As I said, it's changing even now. So it's, it's, it's been a, an interesting journey. And I think one thing that gets missed within the education system is that design, when I went through, we had instructors who were um, heads of consulting mm -hmm. companies, you know. Um, we had a couple, I remember, they designed some, you know, stuff that had won awards and everything like that. And so they were looked at as kind of these iconic people who were teaching us and that. And I think it's changed mm. because Honestly, most of you guys are designing stuff that I couldn't design or wouldn't be designing. Um, again, I just used the example of the homeless. Stuff that you guys came up with, I wouldn't have come up with. Mm. And so the thing is, I think what's happening now is because of the way methods and processes that you guys, we, we never thought we could design as good as those instructors. Hmm. But now, I think students can out-design all of us, you guys. Honestly, I mean, realistically, 
I look at some of the stuff and I go, wow, that's really cool. Stuff that I wouldn't have thought of or come up with. And I use that ex the same thing, like the thing with the homeless. Mm -hmm. the, the kit that you guys came in up with for mm -hmm. the for the at-risk pregnant, you know, that was, <laughs> that was super cool. Mm. You know, I don't think I would have come up with anything like that. Because I would have been stuck on, I've got to bring, you know, all the system stuff that you were designing. I would have had to, you know, make something that's an object. Mm. That's w what my education brought me up with. Mm. I mean, we're educating you differently, but I'm still stuck in that kind of process of methods of way. But yeah, um, I look at stuff that um, students two, three years out that are doing, it's phenomenal. Mm. That's so cool. It's definitely giving us encouragement. I know a lot of our <laughs> listeners are probably going to be up-and-coming designers just like us. And so this is <laughs> definitely boosting our uh, self-esteem. I think, I think the old, old school where, you know, it was the master apprentice, mm -hmm. which is literally how medicine still operates, um, it, it can't continue that way. Mm -hmm. It's stagnant. Mm-hmm. You guys have to be better than us. Mm. Otherwise, the, the, the profession doesn't uh, go forward. That's true. It becomes stagnant. That's a good I point. mean, uh, realistically, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can think of lots of things that, you, that senior students and graduate students are doing. I mean, I'm advising graduate students now, and they're doing stuff that I couldn't even think of doing or even starting, mm. in a sense. They're doing fantastic stuff. That concludes the first part of our interview with Rob Letterer. We are so honored to have Rob on our show to learn from his life experiences and to get inspired by his words of wisdom. Please tune in into part two of our interview with Rob in our next episode. As always, guys, we will post some pictures of Rob's work and his social media links on Instagram at Consider Design Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, next time you design, be helpful, be thoughtful, and be considerate.